Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will uh, jump back into Isaiah. Father, thank you for the many blessings you've given to us. We thank you for the blessings that are ours in Christ, forgiveness of sins and hope for the future and even meaning and purpose in our lives now. We thank you for giving us your word, for entrusting us with this. We would not be able to understand ourselves or to make sense of the world or or certainly to know you as you ought to be known uh, if you hadn't revealed yourself to us. And so thank you for that. But we ask now that we'd be good stewards of your word. We know that This requires a work of your spirit, and we pray that you would give us uh, the energy and the focus, the humility, clarity to attend to your word even now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, Isaiah 1. I just want to review uh, a couple of things from the end of last class, and then because uh, a couple, couple, uh, I I went late, and so, and so choir folks had to leave, but um, I want to just recap that because that'll set the stage for what we're going to do today, we're going to look at today. So we talked a lot about the history, the geography of Isaiah, the ministry of Isaiah in broad brushstrokes, but but I want to key in on something that we talked about just at the very end of class, which is that um, if you look at the beginning of Isaiah, so Isaiah 1, and then you turn to the end, to Isaiah 66, you see this really interesting arc, this really interesting, these really interesting bookends. Because at the beginning of Isaiah, what it says is, it's a woe against the city, how the city of God has become a whore, how the city of God has polluted herself. You know, that, that, that kind of language is used in, in Isaiah 1. So there's this kind of city of God, but it's totally uh, corrupted in every way. And then you get to the end of the book, and it talks about the glorious city, and how people are streaming to the city of God, and how the city of God, the mountain of God, is exalted above all the mountains. And we'll see actually that in chapter 2 as well. And so the question that you are immediately confronted with when you just look at Isaiah from the broadest possible vantage point is, how does the corrupted city, how does the city that is you know, defeated and, and, and is not just defeated, but is, it, it has fallen into sin and wickedness. How does that city become this glorious city at the end? How does this corrupted city become a glorious city? And so the question, that's, that's kind of the big picture question of the book. Now, th- that, that then should provoke all kinds of smaller scale questions, like how do, how do all the parts of Isaiah fit into that big, picture. Um, and what we'll find is they do because because the, the answer to the question of how the corrupted city becomes this eternal glorious city is all wrapped up in God's work among the nations and all wrapped up uh, with God's work through his servants. So that but so in order to but in order to kind of look at the pieces to, to see the trees so to speak we have to understand the forest for a minute and uh, and and so I wanted to just remind you of that, that big picture question. How does the uh, corrupted city become this um, eternal city? And let me actually see if I, um, well, that's, that's fine. That, that's good enough. So now let's break it down a little bit more. Um, Isaiah 1 through 12 is the first section. So we've got our big picture, but now I'm going to go 1 through 12. 
And 1 through 12, just, just look at the end of 12, uh, just so you see that this break is not something that I don't think, I don't think it's something I'm imposing on the text. Um, because in 13, we begin a series of oracles, and we'll get to this, you don't need to think through all of this just now, but beginning in 13, we get a series of oracles against the Gentile nations. So 1 through 12 is zeroing in on Jerusalem, and that's, that's really our big question, Jerusalem and Judah. But 13 begins this long series, it actually is one of the longest sections of the book, this long series of woes or oracles or uh, laments against individual um, Gentile nations. So, so for instance, uh, 13 it deals with Babylon. And then if you want to keep going, there there's an oracle against uh, Assyria. Then there's an oracle against the Philistines. Then there's an oracle against the Moabites. Then there's an oracle against Damascus. And so on and on and on it goes. We could just keep going through Cush, Egypt. Um, the point is, that's a different, that's a that's sort of a different, a discrete, distinct section of the book. 1 through 12 is its own section, and then 13 and following is its own section. Now they fit together, and they're meant to be read together, and we'll we'll sort of explore why whenever we get to it. But but I want to just make the point right now that 1 through 12 is a is a key unit here right at the beginning. So then, that, that should provoke some other questions. Because, um, if you remember, we talked about this last week, but you probably know it already if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah. In what chapter is Isaiah actually called? Isaiah the man called. He's introduced in chapter 1. You know, here's Isaiah. This is the prophecy of Isaiah. But when do we get that moment of Isaiah actually being called to this prophetic ministry? What, do you remember what chapter that's in? Yeah, it's in chapter 6. So, so chapter 6, it begins this way. Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, remember Uzziah was a good king, but he went into the temple near the end of his reign and uh, tried to offer incense and was struck down with leprosy. But here's Isaiah in the temple. And I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he's confronted with the holiness of God. And then we'll skip down to verse 8. It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. Now, the, the, the only point I want to make about this, now we'll, we'll have to really dive into that chapter because it's so rich with importance. But the only, the only point I'm trying to raise now is I want us to think a little bit about why Isaiah 1 through 12 is structured the way it's structured. Because normally, if we were writing the story of Isaiah, if you were going to write a biography of Isaiah, you know, the life and message of Isaiah, um, you would start with chapter 6, right? That would be the beginning. This is when he was called to the ministry. This is when he was called to this prophetic work, and then you kind of move out from there. But what we see is that actually, um, 
1 through 12 is its own unit, right? 13 starts something new. But 1 through 12 doesn't begin with the call of Isaiah. It actually has the call of Isaiah right in the middle of it. So, then we have to say, all right, well, if the call of Isaiah... Isaiah's call is chapter 6, and that's right in the middle. Then what do we have surrounding it? And what we find is, again, in the broadest possible brushstrokes, we could get really granular and talk about specific terms that are used, Hebrew terms that are used that kind of hold this together. But, but without even getting into that, what we have at the broadest possible level is this, I think. We have chapter 1 which we'll, we'll call a kind of prologue or introduction. We have chapter 12, which actually summarizes things. It's an epilogue or a summary. Oops. Summary, prologue, introduction. And then what we find is 2 through 5 and 7 through 11 have a really similar focus, which is... And the chapters are added late and all that stuff, so, so you, don't, you don't have to get hung up on the exact numbering of the chapters. But these sections that are called by us, these chapters, right? Um, uh, the, these, these, these sections right here actually kind of, if you read them, they, they, they wrote, they toggle back and forth. They move back and forth between, to answer the big the big question that we have in Isaiah, which is how does the unfaithful city become the faithful city? How does the corrupted city become the glorious city? Um, and they, what they do, the way they do that is by giving back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in each section, the, the problem, the major problem, like what's the, what's the disease? If you want to think in medical terms, like what's the disease? And then, and then what's the remedy? For the disease. And over and over again, we see the same thing here. Problem or disease. And then the remedy. So actually, by the time you get to the end of Isaiah 1 through 12, um, you don't have all the details. And there's a lot more that needs to be unpacked in the rest of the book. A lot more specific stuff. But... You have the big picture. Um, you, you know that uh, basically, you, you know what the basic problem is with God's people. You know what the basic diagnosis is, the disease is. And, and from God's perspective, here's their problem. And you actually have all the outlines, all the, all the kind of building blocks to understand what the remedy is going to be. Uh, how God is going to do what he's going to do that we see sort of on full display by the time we get to Isaiah 66. So, so it all, it's all right in there. And then, and then at the heart of it is Isaiah's call because the question, the question then is, well, well, how does Isaiah sort of fit into this as a man, as a prophet? How does Isaiah fit into this? And the way Isaiah fits into it, again, as we'll see, it is is unpacked in the context of, of chapter 6. This is a really um, common way for uh, Old Testament or, or actually just ancient Near Eastern in general um, texts to be set up. 
to have this kind of parallel structure and to not go in a straightforward beginning, middle, end like we think of, but, but to, to sort of structure it a little bit differently. And, and sometimes it requires you to almost take a step back to read you know, five chapters or ten chapters at once and sort of outline it. You don't, you don't always notice it when you're just going chapter by chapter by chapter because you don't see the parallels here, but they're there. And, and, but once you see it, it really helps because, because now you're getting the big picture of what Isaiah is, is really driving at and how he's answering our, our, you know, our meta question, um, which, is, which has to do with comparing one, chapter 1 to chapter 66. Does that make sense? Um, structurally, so I, I don't, I, you know, I, outlines are not inspired, I don't, I don't want to get too hung up on them, but if it's an outline that's not just from a commentary, but it's actually in, you know, you sort of see it in the, in the Bible, those tend to be really helpful for, for just making sense of it, for just walking through it. All right, so any questions or comments about that or thoughts about that? Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So then let's, let's start talking about two through five. And, and the problem and the, um, and the problem and the remedy. All right, so first, actually in this case, we're going to get a glorious picture first because, and, and part of the reason for that is this prologue focuses more on Israel's predicament, their, their, their problem. It's, it's more problem-focused, I guess. It's, judge, it's about judgment. Um, and so because of that, this, this section starts with, um, with remedy or, or with, we know, this glorious picture of the future. So, um, what I, I want to read through verses 1 through 9 and ask just two questions. Because if I, if I frame this as disease and remedy or problem and remedy... Two questions I want to ask is, what are the ingredients that make up the restoration? Like, what does the restoration look like? What does the remedy Israel look like? And then the second question is, why has God abandoned them now in, in, in the context of, of this? So let me read one through nine, and I think we should be able to answer these questions. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up, Sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. All right, let me erase this little outline. 
so that we can have space to put these things up here. We'll start with the problem, or, or, or sorry, we'll start with the, the glory, because that's where Isaiah starts in chapter 2. What does the glorious, remedied, healed, you know, on display picture of Jerusalem look like? What's the, what are some of the features of it? Everything's flowing from Zion. Yeah, it's kind of the starting place for everything else. So, so it starts, so... Um, Jerusalem become there are these there are these um, medieval maps that um, have Jerusalem at the center of the world. You know they try they're trying to figure out how the it's not really super accurate, but but they they have Jerusalem at the center. But that's but they didn't think they, that, that by doing that they weren't making a geographical statement. They were making more of a statement like this: so Jerusalem is the center of the world. Everything, all teaching. All instruction, all guidance comes from Zion. It comes from Jerusalem. And now, just as an aside, we're going to need to spend some time as we go through this book talking about how this gets fulfilled, what this actually looks like. But for now, let's just know what it is. So, so everything, I'll just put it this way, everything flows... From Zion. Jerusalem is the center in this whole thing. So, you know, there are all these other political entities, military entities. Zion's at the heart of it. What else? How does that, what are the other ingredients here? Sarah, you want to say something? I don't know. I'm, I forgot what, like, the um, basis for what we're going on. Well, so, really, it's in two through, um, two, one through five. Verses one through five. Because I'm seeing in verse three that it's like, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, no, that's great. That's great. So, so here's what we have, actually. Verse, uh, that, that verse three is key because there's a couple things happening. We might want to put it almost like a, a self point, but... All the other nations of the earth are going to Zion. So they're going up there. But what are they going for? And this is the key point that you made. What are they going there for? They're going there to learn about who God is, to learn instruction, to, to learn God's word. So it's centered on God's word and, and, and who he is and the instruction that his law provides. Um, so they're... You know, we, we see little glimpses of this in, in, throughout the, the Bible, and some of those glimpses are actually um, sort of refracted into promises of the Messiah. For instance, you remember that story when uh, the Queen of Sheba comes to, to learn from Solomon's wisdom. And she says, you know, there's no, there's no one wiser than Solomon in all the earth. And the, the psalmist takes that incident in a, in, a, in a psalm of Solomon, and and talks about that in, in almost messianic terms. You know, this is this is what it's going to be like when people come to uh, the Messiah and they recognize the wit, the wisdom is found there. It's not found in all these other philosophies or all these other approaches. It's found there in Zion. That's where we go to learn about who God is. If someone were to to, to put it in kind of modern um, language, if someone were to say, you know, I I, I have 
no idea who God is. I have no idea about anything regarding myself and really why I'm here and why things are the way they are. I don't know. I don't know anything. Where do I go to learn about God? You know, what, what, what can I, is there a source I can go to? Is there a place where I can learn wisdom? How, how can I know anything about God and what he expects of me? Well, I, I hope what we would say is something like, well, we might say, well, you go to the Bible where God's revealed himself, right? Or we might almost, we might say, if you're looking for a, a, a person, we might say, well, you, you have to go through Jesus Christ. You have to go through God's son. He's the revelation of the father. And, and now when you go through God's son, what Jesus points you to is the Bible. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not an either or, but but the point is, that's where you go in, in, the, in these days when Jerusalem is lifted up. You go, you know you have to go to Zion. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord uh, from Jerusalem. And then how's this going to play out? Well, God's then going to be the one who judges. God's going to judge between the nations, and this is ultimately going to bring great peace. All right, now let's talk about the second half of the question, which is, why has God abandoned his people? And this you really find in verses 6 through 9. Why has God abandoned them? You talked about God's word and instruction that it's centered in God's word. Yep. It's centered, he's the one, versus there they were coupled with the east looking at the Philistines, looking yeah. at the treasures and their work. They were looking at that and worshiping them. Right. So the first thing is, you know, if this is if this is kind of, God's word-centered, Bible-centered, Zion-centered, you know, we'll, we'll use all those words right now. The, the, the problem with Jerusalem at that moment when Isaiah is preaching to them is that that's not where they're going for their direction in life. Uh, they're not looking to God's law. They're actually looking to these fortune-tellers and these Eastern, you know, uh, religious gurus and... and, and uh, fortune tellers like the Philistines, they're, they're, they're trying to find foreigners who they can kind of, you know, make a deal with and, and learn from. So, so they're going to, we, we might say, I don't know, the world, uh, or, or in this case, it's specifically a kind of paganism. Um, and, and they're, so, so in other words, these people in Jerusalem have God's law. And they are, as, as Paul talks about um, Israel in Romans, they, they have so many benefits. They have the oracles of God to them is entrusted. The oracles of God, they have those things. But where are they looking when they have questions, when they have life difficulties, when they need guidance and direction? They're looking elsewhere. They're looking to the Philistines. They're looking to the East. They're looking to these fortune tellers. That's what they're doing instead. So... So that's one major indictment. And this is an indictment that should really speak to us today. Because if you think about it, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible, or the Bible refers to itself as the word of Christ. Um, so we have this. And, and yet, one question that it's, that's worth asking yourself is, when, you know, when the chips are down, when I'm faced with a really significant life decision, when I'm looking for direction and guidance, when I'm trying to set priorities, when I'm sort of filtering the circumstances of life and trying to navigate those, what do I look to? 
for guidance. Where do I turn for guidance? And and oftentimes, even you know, we're we're in a situation that's not that's somewhat analogous to the situation of Jerusalem as as Christians growing up with the Bible. We have uh, the law of God here at our disposal. And, and yet, what is it that we look to so often when we determine how we're going to live our lives? Well, we, oftentimes we look to something else, or at least our instinct is to look to something else. It's exactly what the, the, they were doing in Jerusalem at that time. So don't think when you read this indictment that it's far-fetched or that it's kind of, you know, unthinkable. It's actually, you know, right near where we live. And it's the kind of thing we tend to do all the time. When you think about what success would look like in your life, or what happiness would look like in your life, or, or uh, 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 any of those questions, how, how is it, where is it that you go for definition? How, how do you fill out those categories? Well, if you're filling out those categories by something other than what God's Word says, then you're really doing exactly what uh, verse 6 describes. You have rejected your people because... They're full of things from the East. Fortune tellers like the Philistines, they strike hands with the children of foreigners. All right, that's one key thing. What else characterizes them in 6 through 9? What else are they sort of being judged for here? Well, idolatry and then even a subversion of the created order in verse 9. All right, read, read, it, read it for us, Emma. This the subver- subversion of the created order. Right. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Good. 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 So, so it's idolatry at a at a kind of surface level. I mean, not just the surface level, but the most obvious way to refer to it is idolatry, right? But when you kind of peel back. The layers of idolatry, what idolatry boils down to, which, and when you peel back these layers, it looks really silly, but what you're doing is you're bowing down to something that you've made, um, which, is, which is kind of an inversion of the way it should work. We should, we should seek to worship that which is greater than us, or that which is the creator of us, right? But what does idolatry always consist of? Well, it consists of uh, bowing down to something that is a human creation, um, and and so and so it's idolatry. There is this um, inversion. That's a good way of putting it. Inversion of the creator creature. No, this is exactly. I mean, this is probably worth just taking taking a moment to look at. This is exactly what Paul says everyone does in Romans 1. Uh, just turn there for a second in case in case it's not familiar. Um, here's what Paul says in Romans 1, 18. I'll start in verse 18. So this is not just Judah at the time of Isaiah. This is the world. And what we're going to find, incidentally, is that everything written to Judah is written to the world, but we'll see that later. But this makes it clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God uh, for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then, and then Paul goes on to say how you can see this play out because what happened is in, in rejecting the truth of God and in turning to a created thing instead, in turning to idolatry, then what happened is in judgment, God gave people over to things that are, were obviously damaging and, and obviously uh, uh, sinful and disobedient to the Lord. And it's a, kind of, it's a kind of natural progression from their worship of the creature rather than the creator. Um, this idolatry. And that was, that was at the heart of what Judah did. Now, interestingly enough, I made this point before in chapter 1. If you, if you were transported right now, if we snapped our fingers and we were transported back into Jerusalem at the time of Isaiah, remember, it's really three kings that he ministers under, and, and two of them are pretty good. Um, and and if, you were, if you were transported back there right now, what you would see is people of Jerusalem still going up and worshiping in the temple and still doing the basic things that are outlined in terms of their regular acts of worship. So, so, so don't, don't misunderstand what's going on in chapter 2. He's not saying, you've, you know, to put it in kind of our language, he's not saying you stopped going to church and now all you do is listen to the Philistine fortune tellers and bow down to idols. That's not what was happening in Isaiah's day. What was happening in Isaiah's day was, and we know this from Isaiah, we know it from First and Second Kings, we know it from Chronicles. What was happening in Isaiah's day is the people were continuing to do their normal acts of worship. They were continuing to, in many respects, look like, you know, God-fearing Jewish people worshiping God, but they were combining that with, um, you know, all these other idolatrous practices. And, and so what, what the Lord is, is condemning them for is not what we would look at and see as total abandonment of him, although he calls it an abandonment of him. But it wouldn't look that way to us. The way it would look to us is just, no, they're, they're, they're worshiping the Lord, but they also have these other side fortune tellers they listen to, these side idols that they worship just to kind of cover their bases and, and make sure that they... They're, um, you know, make sure that they've got everything wrapped up. So, so that's what's going on here in chapter 2. Now, there's something else, though, that I want to look at that, that's really important in 6 through 9. Um, so what is the other, they've got idols, they, they, they look to other sources of revelation, but what's their other major problem? These are, there are three, really, and we've touched on two of them. 
What's their other big problem? It's a problem that we don't consider to be a problem. Yeah, exactly. Look at verse 7. This, this, you'd say, you know, if I just took verse 7 out and, you know, just, it just excerpted it from this and said, is this, verse 7, is this a, a blessing from God or is it uh, something that God condemns among the people? You'd probably say, oh, that's a blessing from God. That must be, that must be what God promises to people who obey him. And th- there's, there's something to be said for that, but, but listen to it. Their land is filled with silver and gold. That sounds good, right? That sounds like something you should put in calligraphy on your wall if you do that. Um, And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. But now we take it from the wall and put it back here and you realize the context. The, The Lord is saying, this is... This is another major problem that you have. So you have these side gods, even though you come and worship me, but I don't really care about that. Um, and you have this side source of revelation, even though you also claim to have my law, but you don't really care about that. Um, and the other thing is, you have this immense wealth at your disposal. And, and even Hezekiah, this is how deep and, and um, deceptive wealth is. Even Hezekiah, who is one of the best kings in Judah, we read that last week, and we'll see it in Isaiah. Very, very godly, and, and at, at times of great stress, really trusts in the Lord, does a lot to try to eliminate the idolatry in the land. I mean, he's just a good king. But even Hezekiah, when it comes down, if there's one thing Hezekiah does wrong, it's this moment where he he's sort of proud of all his wealth. And and he he wants to showcase it even to the enemies of God, to sort of prove to them that he's really something. And and so that shows you just how deep this is. This, this is why Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. Because it's not just that, you know. It enables you to do all kinds of sinful things and, 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 and it's not going to make you happy, you know, all that stuff. It, it's not that. It's, 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 it actually deceives you. It, it, it makes you think that it contains certain, uh, has certain power that it doesn't have. And it actually makes you think that it has certain power that only God has, like security or, or, or uh, you know, a, a sort of safe future uh, um, or, or protection from from difficulty it doesn't have that power but it but it but it tricks you into thinking it does have that power um and and this is the big this is a big problem with judah that they have this great wealth okay so what's the lord going to do um well the answer that the lord's going to give so i'll just put up here wealth well, how are we going this is the this is what chapter two is, is gonna is gonna show us at the end. How how are we going to get from here to here? How are we gonna get from a people who are who have side gods, who look to other sources of revelation, and who have this immense wealth which just carries with is fraught with danger? Uh, 
How are we going to get from there to there, to a situation where actually God's word is on open display, people are coming to listen to it, that's elevated above everything else? How are we going to get there? And the answer that Isaiah gives, and this is, we're going to see this in all of 1 through 12, and we're going to see it in all of the rest of the book. And we actually saw a glimpse of it in chapter 6, if you, if you were reading ahead in chapter 6. The way that God is going to get from here to here is, is, well, it's really through judgment that he's going to do it. He's going to do it through judging his people. Let me just, let me just read this. Um, ver- I'll begin in verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, Mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And so here's the, here's the takeaway, all right, at the end of that picture of horrific judgment. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he. So here's the here's the takeaway. There is a coming day of judgment. And it's only through that day of judgment that God will actually bring restoration to his people. And because there is a coming day of judgment that you can be confident will happen, uh, your only play right now. The only thing you can do, if you have any wisdom, any sense, any trust in God's word, the only thing you do is you, right now, uh, turn everything over to the Lord and go to Him. And and stop, and that's going to mean you're going to have to turn away from regarding man. Because no one can help you. No one can save you from it. No one can protect you when that day comes. They, They can't stop it. It's coming. And so what you do, if you're in Judah, or if you're here right now, is you turn to the Lord. You give your life to Him, and whatever decisions you need to make, whatever resources you have, whatever abilities, and whatever plans, the the only play is to turn it over to Him, because this judgment is coming. Now, let me just show you something, because I know we're we're going to lose some choir members in a minute. All right, so let me let me make sure to get this in. I want to show you something from Acts 10. Um, In Acts 10, Peter 
um, has been given a vision uh, to go to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile, and, you know, the, the gen- he preaches to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles repent and believe, and the, the, the Spirit works in a mighty way among them. But I want to show you something, kind of right in the middle of Acts 10, because what, what we will see in this section is that Jesus taught the apostles to preach just what I said to you from Isaiah 2. Look at this. He goes to, Peter describes all that Jesus did and how he was anointed by God. This is verse 38. Uh, Verse 39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So after Christ rose from the dead, he gathered together these disciples and he taught them what they were supposed to preach. He gave them a little preaching class. Look at verse 42. What are they supposed to preach? He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here's what the apostles are supposed to preach. The apostles are supposed to preach first, point one of their sermon. Point one, there's a coming day of judgment and Jesus Christ is appointed as your judge. You can like that, not like that, care about Jesus, try to ignore Jesus. It doesn't change the fact you will face him as your judge one day. So you can be indifferent to it, but it's going to happen. It's just a a fact. Put Put it on your calendar, it's happening. All of us in this room, all of us in the world, you're going to face Jesus Christ as your judge. He's the one appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. If you want proof of that, you can look at the resurrection. But, point two, um, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness in his name. So, point one is judgment, because God's going to work to bring about his purposes through judgment. And what we know in the New Testament is that judgment is centered on Jesus Christ. But point two is, stop trusting in man. You can go to him and receive forgiveness of sins and rescue from the judgment to come. So that's going to be Isaiah's message. It's the apostolic message as well. Now I know we're about to lose people, so let me just pray. Father, once again, thank you. We need this uh, teaching. We need this revelation. Thank you for giving it to us. Use uh, your word by your spirit in our hearts to transform us further into the image of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.